Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and Jane isn't with me this week, but historical romance author Sarah McLean is. We talk about what you do when you find a truly disgusting historical figure who is fascinating, but also really gross. We talk about bathrooms in the Regency and the latest and upcoming book in her Rules of Scoundrel series. The music that you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater, and I'll have information at the end of the podcast about who this is and where you can get it. Berkeley, our podcast sponsor, would like you to know about Pamela Clare's Striking Distance, an all-new and sexy action romance which is on sale now. I'll have information at the end of the podcast about the book as well. And now, on with the podcast and our interview with Sarah McLean. Would you please introduce yourself and tell us about the surprise in your new book? I'm Sarah McLean, and I write historical romances. And uh, the third book in my current series, The Rules of Scoundrels, um, which is called No Good Duke Goes Unpunished, uh, it came out November 26th. And I'm super excited to be here with you, Sarah, and um, to talk about everything related to the scoundrels and the books. And I'm hoping we get to talk a lot about just romance in general, because that's always fun with you. The Rules of Scoundrels series, which is a four-book series, was conceived after I did a fair amount of um, watching of the Ocean 12 and 13 movies and decided that I really wanted to write a, a series of books set in a casino. And because I write uh, historical fiction, um, I had to do a lot of research on whether or not that would even be possible to write a series of books set in a casino. And sure enough, um, it is. And I have. And um, there were a lot of gaming hells back then, right? There were, um, but gaming hells prior to the Regency were really just places where people would go and hang out and gamble. They were a good place to sit around and, and play cards with your friends or play dice with your friends. So they were like gentlemen's clubs. Exactly. Um, but in the Regency, in the kind of 1818, 1819, a, a man named William Crockford, who was by all accounts a kind of disgustingly foul human being um, who smelled like fish and and was sort of pasty-faced and disgusting. Did um, the historical research actually say he smelled like fish? Apparently, yes. Oh, that's disgusting. Can you imagine having such foul body odor that it lasts 200 years in historical record? I know. Oh, my gosh. The poor man, right? I mean, he had this kind of, like, classic, almost Dickensian kind of background that you really, I mean, look, the reality is that historical records from that time, you're never entirely certain certain if they're fully 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 accurate but I mean reading about this guy makes you feel like this is this is exactly the kind of the kind of person you imagine to have sort of grown up in the gutter in London at that time his mother was a prostitute and his father was a fishmonger and he um you know literally kind of crawled out of the gutter <laughs> literally <laughs> apparently because he smelled so bad that's um, truly disgusting and I, but, I i'm i'm really glad that historical romance has not taken on describing the smells of the villainy because that would probably just turn my stomach <laughs> exactly um he but he was brilliant he was a math genius and what he conceived of was actually he actually changed the world of gaming because he conceived of this concept that 
um, the house could win. He could, by all accounts, calculate odds in his head of any given throw. He could, um, he was a, a tremendous card counter and just sort of generally one of these people who just is a complete and utter genius on top of being kind of disgusting and foul. And I really fell in love with the idea of this guy um, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, probably in part because he was, he's so perfect in my head. He's such a kind of perfect dichotomy of, you know, the foul and the genius. Um, And so I, I realized that actually if I wrote a casino, a true casino where, you know, the owners of the casino could win on every turn of the cards or every play of the dial, then I wouldn't actually be historically inaccurate. So I took, so he is sort of, as I said, he was running dice games on the street and in the kind of horrible neighborhoods, like seven dials in London. And then he started running dice games in better neighborhoods. And then he opened a small gaming hell somewhere sort of closer to um, Mayfair. And then he finally, to sort of stick it to the aristocracy, bought this big giant building at the top of St. James's um, right across the street from White's. And he opened Crockford's, which is still exists in London, um, though now it's owned by some sort of Singaporean conglomerate. Most places um, are. So right. Did you get to go to London and like gamble for research? I did. Well, I got to go and I met the um, historian. Well, the the guy, the general manager of Crockford's has worked there for um, 30 or 40 years. And he uh, was willing, you know, he was sort of welcoming, very welcoming to have me come in and meet with him, though he's, there isn't very much left from the original. It's now moved buildings. It didn't actually bring much with them. There are, um, there's a sketch of the original floor um, and a couple of other kind of small documents. But it was, it was actually really fun to sort of pop in and, and meet, meet him. Um, and he's been very, he was very kind um, while I was sort of coming up with the idea for the series. But of course, my hero couldn't be William Crockford, right? Because he. The hero who smells like fish. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. I know you romance authors. I know you like to describe the way the hero smells because it's always sandalwood and horses and leather and manly and sweat <laughs> and manly horse sweat with leather and straw. <laughs> But if y'all start writing heroes that smell like fish, I am so done. Just saying. I am going to declare historical romance dead is when the heroes start smelling like fish. And then I am going to break up with it and I will be done. Because ew. Ew. Challenge accepted. All right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. The the struggle, of course, was that I had this amazing guy who probably is you know more in life was probably more colorful than anybody that I could come up with in fiction. Um, but of course he's, he's in no way heroic. So I turned him into four, um, you know, really, really awesome heroes. And so the idea was that I would create these four that, that, um, the the casino, which is called the fallen angel in my books, um, was start was founded, um, by four fallen aristocrats who either by chance or by choice have lost everything and have to have to pull themselves out of the gutter metaphorically because they don't smell like the gutter. Um, and, and they, you know, come, these four heroes come together and, and build this club. First, uh, is Michael, the, who's the star of a rogue by any other name. Um, he's the addict, a reformed gambling addict who runs the floor of the club. Then there's Cross, who's a math genius and runs all the, um, finances of the club. And that, that book is one good Earl deserves a lover. 
And then there's Temple, who's the brawn of the operation, who's an undefeated bare knuckle boxer. Um, and his book, No Good Duke Goes Unpunished, was out uh, the 26th. And um, the fourth is Chase, who is the most mysterious of all of the founders. Um, but Chase's secret is revealed in Temple's book. And I'm really excited already by just how much excitement and shock and awe I have caused. So <laughs> can, you, can you share a little bit about the secret? Because this will I be can. out after the book is out. So I think I you're can. in a safe zone. I can. Yay! Uh, so um, it's probably, probably everybody listening to this who knows anything about my books or has already heard about it and probably people who haven't. It's where it feels like. But um, Chase is actually not a hero. She is a heroine. And um, she, but writing the books for the first, writing the first three books, every time Chase is on the page, you have no idea that she's a woman. Um, I don't use any pronouns in the scenes that she's in. Um, and the concept was very much that I wanted it to feel, I mean, and I knew this from the very, the conception of the series, that I wanted readers to be <clears throat> slightly tricked into this romance because we've all we're all huge romance readers, right? And we've all read that series where we can't wait for the last book, the last guy to get his due. And I wanted readers who had taken the journey with me to have a moment of sheer surprise. Chase was really fun to write because she's a really powerful female and she, you know, runs this gaming hell and she has a really dark past. Um, and, but she's got connections that make it, that have, have given her the opportunity, unlike many women during that time, to take control of her life. And she now is arguably one of the most, she's arguably the most powerful woman in England. And certainly um, many people believe she's one of the most powerful men. So, so she presents as a man and dresses as a man and only the other three people know that she's a woman. Well, now you're getting into tricky territory because there are some other secrets that aren't out yet that, you'll, that we'll discover, the readers will discover as they get to Chase's book or as they, as they read Chase's book. But she presents as, she does present as, a, she wears men's clothing quite a bit around the club um, she masquerades, she has multiple identities in terms of, um, she's not, she doesn't have a personality disorder though. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> though that could be interesting. Um, she is, she is a, she is a woman and her partners know that she's a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Chase is always hidden for those people who have read the books, mm -hmm. um, Chase's, uh, nobody's ever met Chase other than the partners. Um, so, you know, there are moments, right? The very first scene in the very first book involves, a, you know, gambler who's lost everything demanding to see Chase. Right. And um, Bourne and Temple say, that's not going to happen. Right. And, no, and so the other three scoundrels have always protected her in the right. sense of um, Chase is kind of the, the Wizard of Oz. Right. Um, and in, in some ways... She really is the Wizard of Oz, right? Because behind the curtain, there isn't the most powerful man in London. There's a woman. Right. That is interesting. Yeah. So I've had a lot of fun kind of writing her. And I think that people who've read the series all the way through, I at least I hope, and I've worked really hard to, to make it so, um, 
I hope that when they get to the point where they realize that Chase is a woman in Temple's book, they'll sort of gasp aloud and then say, oh, now I'm going to go back and reread. Right, Um, of course, because you want to go reread with that knowledge now that you have it. Sure. And what I'm hoping is that they'll be you'll all be entertained by the signpost that I that I've put along the way. I mean, there are once you know Chase is a woman, the reread of the of the stories I hope will be even more entertaining because you see, you'll see it. You'll see the the clues. Yeah. So in a way, you have been writing both forward and backward through a series because you know where you're going to, but you also have to give people a backwards reread where they start over from the beginning with knowledge from the end and reread from a different, almost a different perspective. That's a really hard writing challenge. It's um it it was a challenge. Certainly, writing Chase has been the hardest part of this whole series. Um, and um, but I've had a lot of fun with it. I I think there's something very comforting as a writer, um, about knowing that this scene will hold a different kind of weight in a year or two years. There's sort of a moment where you you think to yourself like, okay, this isn't there's something bigger about this writing that I'm doing right now. Um, and there's something very, um, there's something that kind of gets, it helps get you out of the weeds of the book that you're writing, which right. is always a challenge, I think, for me. What were your favorite scenes to write so far in this series? What scenes have you really enjoyed writing in this in this, these sets of books, either the ones that are out and done or the ones that are coming out, the one that's coming out? Um, I love any scene in the club. The club is my, the fallen angel is my Hogwarts, right? I mean, yeah. the, the concept is very, I've, I've always sort of felt like the whole place is a little bit of a room of requirement. <laughs> and, um, when I created each of the three characters or, or each of the four heroes, but specifically born cross and temple, whose you know, books are all complete. I'm still working on Chase's book. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that each book would sort of uncover a layer of the club that, um, I kind of knew existed, but I would be able to kind of play around and explore with these books. Certainly in the rogue, in a rogue by any other name, which is the first book in the series, we discover that there are two clubs actually living, coexisting. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is of course the men's club in the casino. And then there's this second layer of the club, which is the the ladies' side. You know, the heroine of that book discovers that it exists, and it's a casino essentially for women, for aristocratic women. Um, did and, that actually exist? Is there any historical evidence that women did have an option like that, or is that something that you thought, you know, what this is my regency? Women can gamble. Um, it's sort of both. I I I have no evidence that this ever existed. I mean, certainly there's evidence that women were able to get to gamble. The concept that often comes up when we discuss historical romance specifically um, that women would never have, quote, been able to do this is perplexing to me in part because I think that women of the time um, certainly made these choices and they certainly did these things. That said, it wasn't necessarily written down in the history books that these things existed. Right. My regency, to use your term, uh, has always included extraordinarily strong female characters, just like many women in historical romance. So um, for me, I always, I knew right from the very beginning that there was going to be this second layer of the casino in part because Chase was going to ultimately be a big piece of this. You know, I couldn't really believe that Chase would open a men's club and not make there be space for women. 
Um, so that was always, you know, a really fun part of, of writing it, knowing that there would always be these little, these little moments where I could unlock a piece of the casino and show it to readers. Um, you know, things like the se- there's a there's a whole network of secret passageways that's revealed in the second book in the series. And then, of course, Temple is a boxer. And the theory behind the whole club is, should you lose your entire fortune to the casino, there is a way for you to win it back. And that is to beat Temple in the ring, in the boxing ring. So we see when we when we're with Temple, we see much of the underground of course. Of um, literally underground, but also the boxing ring itself and all the sort of um, the seedier side of the casino, um, which I had. I mean, I just love it. I love writing every piece of it. But this last book, Chase's book, will be because she's a woman and because she has an aristocratic background. This book will actually have a lot more space above ground in London. It'll be a little more. Uh, we're returning a little more to the ballroom. Right, of course. For this one. I think it's interesting that. In most cases, I believe gatherings of women that are in some way officially and socially acceptable almost always have a subversive subtext. You know, you have book clubs. It's perfectly acceptable to go and leave your husband and the kids in the house and go to book club. Mm-hmm. But anyone who's been in a book club knows you don't actually talk about the book the whole time. You're actually <laughs> there socializing under the auspices of talking about the book. And then you have the politics of selecting the new book and talking about the book a little bit. And then you really just talk to each other. Women, I think gatherings of women have always included this sort of subtext of what really goes on. So it may not have ever been recorded, but it would not surprise me if there were, you know, women's sewing groups for the church and it was actually gambling. Yeah. Naked, you know, naked people getting sketched, you know, fun things like that. Yeah. You think about uh, romance reading in general as a gendered activity um, that seems at one, uh, on one hand, extraordinarily safe to the rest of the world, to the, yep. the outside world. And I mean, I, I've, I talk a lot about how it's incredibly subversive at the same time. Yep. And I think, you know, we do, we're still in this place. It's sort of, sad and shocking that in 2013 we're still in this place where we have to think about things as subversive acts but there's no doubt that you're right oh yes and even the covers that i struggle the most with like i personally am not a fan of waxed man chest with large nipples and that makes up a great deal of the covers especially his uh contemporary and erotic but behind the waxed man chest there can be some incredibly deep and difficult emotion. The man chest hides a lot of things as much as the frilly dresses and the bodices do as well. There's the covers so often don't match that I accept now that they have very little to do <laughs> with the entire <laughs> book and I'm used to it. Um, and, and I know someone right now who's probably listening who works in an art department is twitching because they try really hard to make the book cover represent the book. But I'm also accustomed, accustomed to them having absolutely nothing to do with each other. Yep. And I think there's always hiding stuff. Absolutely. But there's such joy, I think, for writers and for readers when the cover matches the book. Oh, yes. Um, You know, I think about, um, in my own case, uh, the cover for One Good Earl Deserves a Lover. The heroine is a, you know, nerdy science, science, science you know, heroine. And she wears glasses and she's totally blind. And she, on the cover, she's sitting at a desk and there are actual spectacles there. It's all very sort of real. And she looks like herself. Um, and I got so much love for that cover. And I have so much love for that cover. 
It's also um, interesting because one of the things that I think Avon does really well is visually brand different authors with use of typeface and color and style. So one of the things that Avon has done with your books is to add a great deal of jewel tone and texture. So A Rogue by Any Other Name has this beautiful sort of rose, rosy red chiffon smooth fabric. And then one girl, one good girl deserves a lover. The background is incredibly ornate, almost like it's an oriental rug up on the wall, and that's deep mm-hmm. purple. And then her dress has visual texture that's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And then no good duke goes unpunished is emerald green, and the dress also has a great deal of texture. Plus, she's going up a stone staircase. So there's this depth of texture with your covers that works yeah. really well to. You can you can see those across the room, and you know whose books those are. Yeah, and the other thing that Avon does, um, and it's really, I mean, I think it really does set their their covers apart. The lettering is actually hand lettered, yep. so you know we all have our own fonts. Yep. You know, Louisa James has her own font, and I have my own font, and Julia Quinn has her own font, and yep. you know, um, Sophie Jordan. So we all kind of have our. You our, have a typeface. Yeah, and it really does make a difference. And I actually just got the cover for. Never Judge a Lady by her cover, which is the next fourth book in the series. Never Judge a Lady? Never Judge a Lady by her cover. That is a great title. Did you come up with that or did your editor come up with that? No, I came up with all these titles were mine. When I pitched the series, these were the titles. So That's a fabulous, fabulous title. (laughs) Well, that's why actually all over the, the internet, right? Well, as we are talking in the past, um... There is that the title isn't anywhere on the internet, but actually it'll be released on release day. It'll be uh, it'll go up on Amazon, so people will see it because we all thought the title's well, going to give it away. Once we see that title, everyone will know. Um, but I actually have the cover, which it will be revealed at a later date to everyone. And when you look at the four of them together, it just looks like such a series. Oh, in that's such fabulous! A powerful way, and I kind of. I'm like, I'm just wild about the way that they've made the whole thing look. And I think that that's really the key to branding. I mean, we're maybe getting to inside baseball a little bit here, but I think that that's a huge part of branding a new author is making sure that all the Sarah McLean looks look the same. Because this book is going to come um, in fall of 2014, in part because I have another thing coming this month, which is a baby. And so I need a little extra time for this one. So. Well, you can totally promote a book with a baby. It's really easy. I'm lying to you. Um, before we get to No Good Duke Goes Unpunished, because I have a bunch of questions about that, I want to ask one more question about Chase. Mm. Because she's been presenting as a man, mm-hmm. is part of her character in the book the sort of um, the exploration of how difficult it would be to play both sexual gender roles in public and in private? Is there like, does she, is that part of her character's inner conflict? I didn't want to write a cross-dressing book. Um, as much as I love cross-dressing books, um, I felt like that would get in the way of what Chase's real story is. Um, so Chase is in a bit of a bind. She's actually a single mother. So um, a bind. She probably wrapped her breast in like 19 <laughs> yards of ace bandage. <laughs> but she. But the the important thing to remember about Chase is that she doesn't actually when she is at the club in public. She's in women's clothing. Hmm. There are, um, she actually, she has multiple, she, like I said, she has multiple identities. And one of the identities that she uses is um, she, she masquerades as a, prost- as a prostitute on the floor of the club. 
Um, so when she is in public with strangers, she's not dressed as a man. She's dressed as a woman. Interesting. But she's painted, right? So there are still these layers. What I wanted to play with was there are still multiple layers. And I think there have been other historical writers who have done this really brilliantly. Um, and so I don't, by any stretch of the imagination, suggest that I'm the first one. Um, but I wanted to play with the idea that if you masquerade, say, by night on the floor of a casino as a prostitute, but by day in ballrooms across London dressed as a you know debutante, isn't it possible that people wouldn't notice that you're the same person? You're still wearing a disguise. Of course, because people, people often see what they expect to see. Exactly. So for Chase, I, when Chase wears men's clothes behind the scenes at the club, when she's, you know, in a, in a, in a moment with the rest of the owners of the club, say, um, she is, you know, in men's clothes in part because it's comfortable, in part because it gives her freedom of movement. She can move quickly. And there's down, protection of it in it, too. Yeah, down these corridors. And should she come up, stumble across somebody, she can she can fade into the darkness, right? Of course. Um, so there is, I think, the challenge with Chase, her challenge very much, is the balance between having to um, live the part of a woman in London in 1830. Um, and in this particular case, she's, there, her story is very much about um, a, new, a new set of demands that mm -hmm. are being placed on her that require her to live this part of a woman. Um, all while having spent the last 10 years of her life basically living as a man, in, right. metaphorically, because... That's a lot to unpack in one character. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's this moment at one point where her brother says to her, like, you've lived 10 years as a man. It's time for you to start acting like it and and taking responsibility for your life. And there's a very sort of powerful moment with her at that moment where she thinks to herself where she realizes that she's she's struggling with gender in a totally or we as readers are struggling you know see her struggling with gender in a way that you know is is not usually sort of deeply explored in in romance novels I don't think that's really cool now, hopefully I can pull it off <laughs> has it been written it's not finished. It's not finished, but it's in progress. Yes. Oh, yeah. You know, no big deal. So, Just no, I mean, but it's great. I mean, I love the layer. It's a very, com it's very complex in a way that, I mean, I think my books, you know, sort of are getting more and more complex. And I don't know if that's a good thing, but they seem to be. And in the, this is definitely the most complex character that I've written, um, in part because she is both hero and heroine. And the worst thing, and we've all read this series, right, where, um, you know, you think it, a character acts one way for three books in the series, and then suddenly in the fourth book, there's something completely different. Yep. And with Chase, that's particularly a challenge because for three books, she's been an unbeatable kind of dominant male figure. And you know, she's, she's actually a female. As an alpha. Mm -hmm. And so my struggle, and by extension her struggle, is how to reconcile alpha male who owns the casino with heroine and allow a man who and allow a man to be a hero who compliments her but doesn't diminish her and isn't diminished by her oh yeah piece of cake no big deal <laughs> absolutely I mean, oh because, yeah right historical well historical romance heroines have to have 
Um, I think, you know, a great romance heroine has to have a little bit of, of slightly flawed in a way that we understand, in the way that you or I have experienced mm-hmm. or can at least kind of wrap our heads around. Yep, yep. And that's really hard when you have, when you've built this character who is literally the most powerful person in the London underworld, yep. right? It's true. Plus, so, it's, it, with, it, with a plot like this, I don't think anyone's going to be like, meh. So when this when this book comes out, there's probably going to be a, a bit of a polarized reaction from all different quarters. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing, and I think the the, the hardest part, and the part that I've I'm actually I'm actually okay with. I think I've I think I've handled it. Um, was get was starting the book in the right place and starting the book in the place where she suddenly doesn't have all of the power. Right. And which is, you know, it's, it's the beginning of every romance novel, right? But in this particular case, I had to have a really good reason why right, she... Right, of course. So we have spent a lot of time on Chase, but I do want to talk about No Good no good Duke guns Goes Unpunished, if I can say that without stuttering. Jeez. My poor middle child. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> tell me. So Temple is the big, brawling, undefeated hugely intimidating, physically enormous, scary ass dude in your series. He's the, yep. the sort of the muscle. Mm-hmm. And he has through the whole series so far, which is two books, a very um, dark, not so secret thing. Like everyone kind of knows this, this stuff about him, but nobody talks about it because it's really horrible. And then his heroine is Mara. Can you tell us about them? Sure. Um, so Temple Secret or Temple past it's not a secret as you said yeah he just doesn't like to talk about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah he would prefer that it'd be a secret nobody likes to talk about it um when temple was was 18 um his father so temple is the um is the duke of lamont and uh when he was 18 and his father the former duke of lamont was still alive um he was marrying the father was to have married um his what would have been his fourth wife who was pretty much a child bride. I mean, a 16-year-old Marlowe, um, who was extraordinarily wealthy, um, but didn't her family didn't have a title, and it was a situation where, um, you know, the hope was that he would marry this woman and she would bring a fortune to the dukedom and, and revitalize the, the lands. On the morning of his father's wedding, Temple wakes up in a bed covered in blood. Ruh-roh. No memory of the night before. And he is quickly discovers that this bed is the bed um, that had been given to Marlowe. It's, it's her bedchamber. Oh, dear. Um, she is missing and presumed dead. But um, thankfully, no body, no murder. And so Temple avoids prosecution and ultimately jail. But uh, everyone knows that he's killed her. Um, she, at best, at, I mean, it's pretty clear that he killed her. Um, and especially because all he can say is that he doesn't remember. He has no memory of the night before. Um, he remembers a woman from the night before, but he never met her. So he can't, he has no sort of under, he, he truly believes that perhaps he did do this. Um, uh, his father exiles him. The aristocracy exiles him. He ends up um, having no choice but to, um, make his way in London as a as a fighter, as a street fighter. So he has effectively been disinherited and socially ostracized for getting in bed and ending and having the bed end bloody, only it's not sex. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Um, now, 12 years later, Temple is, is 
like all the other scoundrels brought into the angel by by Chase. Um, and they have they have all founded together this this casino. But as you said, Temple's the violent one, um, in part because he, and this was a, this was something that I really wanted to explore. He's not entirely sure he didn't kill her. Um, right. He doesn't know if he's guilty. Right. So for twelve years, he's lived with this idea that violence might be his his mo, and mm-hmm. and he's kind of leaned into that. Um, he he fight he fights every night. The very first moment you ever see Temple in all in the whole series, he is itching for a fight. Um, and every night he gets a new fight in the ring. Where we've come to now is you know he's this dark, this very dark character with this very dark past. But there's no evidence to prove that he actually did do it, um, which seems to matter to some people in the stories. And doesn't seem to matter at all to him. You know, Chase, for example, says he you, there's no proof. Pippa at one point, Pippa is the heroine of One Good Girl Deserves a Lover. Um, she at one point says there's no proof. I don't believe anything that I can't prove. And mm-hmm. he he doesn't seem to care. In his mind, this woman turned up dead. He certainly had something to do with it. And this is his new violent life. In the first chapter, though, of this book, he's walking home and he, you know, Temple is a really, he's sort of a martyr in, in a sense, in the sense that, you know, he won't live in, he won't live in the, in, in a townhouse, you know, near the aristocracy. He's sort of exiled himself as well. He's walking home through sort of the, one of the worst sections of London and there are footsteps behind him. And it turns out that um, the person following him is Marlowe, not dead at all, um, just 12 years older. And she needs help. So she's, she has no choice but to come to him. Um, and she offers him absolution. And she offers him redemption by saying, you know, I'll come forward and tell everybody that I still exist, that I'm still alive, if you give me what I need. Um, and that's the beginning of their story. And so with effectively exonerating Temple in the court of social opinion, he mm-hmm. would be restored to being extremely desirable, sure, as a potential as a potential husband, right? Because he's, I mean, he's everything, right? He's powerful, he's rich, he's a duke. What he's more do you need, right? He's big, he's strong. Yeah, I he's, presume he's a romance hero. He's hot, you know. He's handsome. He's yeah. I mean, he's everything. Well, he's he's a little worse for wear. He's a little scarred, and he has a broken nose. He's you know his nose has been broken a few times. But hey, <laughs> as long as he doesn't smell like fish. He does not in any way smell like fish. I'm very relieved to hear that. In fact, he bathes during the after every fight. It's part of the story. I love a good historical romance with exceptional amounts of bathing. I find it. I find it just so fascinating and fun. Like you know, I didn't know. I know y'all didn't bathe that much, but in this book, you're so clean. Good for you. Every day, every day, he has a massive tub. Well, he's massive and, and clean, I- and he doesn't smell like fish. Of course, he has a massive tub. There's like a whole scene on the cutting room floor of 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 Temple like in a tub, in this like humongous tub that was inspired by um. Have you ever uh have you ever been to Hearst Castle in California? I have not, but I know that the bathrooms are completely bonkers. They're out outrageous, and I was like, oh my god! I was at Hearst Castle while I was writing Temple's book, and I was like, I'm going to write one of these bathrooms into this book. <laughs> and <then> I <laughs> It's one of these classic moments where you think to yourself, like, this is a great idea. And then you do it and you're looking at it and you're like, this moves the story along. Not at all. (laughs) Yes, but it's a tub. And hey, content for the website. 
Exactly. So How you could even turn that into a short temple of the tub. <laughs> what, are, what, what was your favorite part about writing this book? What scene gave you the most joy to write or give, gave you just the most excitement about this particular story? Writing Mara was both my biggest challenge and my the most fun that I had while I was working on this book. Um, in part because when we come at a series as a romance reader, um, we often can see the signposts along the way that re- that authors have left for us about who the next hero is, right? We right. all, it's sequel bait. And when you come up with a series like this one, where it's so obvious that there are four heroes and each one will get his own love story, um, you know, readers start to fall in love long before the hero is actually, the hero of, you know, book three is, before we're actually reading book three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a lot of, I got a lot of notes about Temple. I got a lot of Facebook posts about Temple. People would come up to me at conferences to talk to me about Temple. Um, and I knew that Temple was one of these heroes who would be forgiven by virtue of having been in the books for, you know, a year. And actively working on his own penance through his own behavior. Exactly. So he, so, but Mara had done this horrible thing and she had, you know, at 16, she'd made these choices that, um, you know, that had had ruined a life, yeah. arguably. I mean, if he weren't so lucky as to have been, you know, pulled out of the gutter by Chase and brought into this club, like, he could have a very different life. Of course. Um, and so I knew she was going to have to do something and be something really powerful in order to garner the forgiveness of the reader. And I knew that her ship was going to have to be turned during the course of the book, that it wouldn't just be enough for me to say, here's this person you've never met before. This is what she's done to one of your favorite characters ever. And she's really, 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 really sorry. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) At H1. Right? Yes. She's not sorry that she did what she did. She is remorseful that it has had the impact it's had. Right. Mara's journey is very much about moving from not being sorry that she did what she did, place where she is deeply sorry. And if she could do it over again, she would have done it differently right. for Temple. Right. Um, and that's love, right? Like that's we go right. from selfishness to selflessness right. over the course of this. So for me, writing Mara was always very powerful. And I knew I had to give Mara to answer your question, which was, seems like it was a million years ago. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sort of yammering, but the, that's kind of the, the point. Go ahead. <laughs> but to answer your question, I think my favorite parts were the moments where I got to write Mara without Temple so that I could show why she did what she did and um, show that there is a sort of core to her that is very honorable and moral. Um, She runs an orphanage in London. She's hidden in plain sight. Um, She has a pet pig named Lavender. Of course she does. And yeah. (laughs) And Lavender's the piglet and they sort of, you know, caught her, you know, she was rescued and she lives in the orphanage with all the boys. And I really wanted the orphanage to have this very lost boys feel to it. Um, wanted it to feel like all these boys had, you know, were kind of 
wearing, you know, ties around their heads and like carrying like, like table legs and sort of a little bit raucous, but it was controlled crazy. Um, and Mara is, is very, she's great. She is wild about these kids and she it will do anything to save them, which is the only reason why she ends up leaving her protected environment and going to temple and revealing herself because suddenly her orphanage is in danger and he's the only one who can save it. So that book is out Tuesday. Yes. And people should read it in your opinion. (laughs) What? So, (laughs) well, of course, what other books have you read recently that you would really recommend to other romance readers? What, what are you reading right now? Just Yesterday finished, I'm a little behind, I'm like a few weeks behind. I just yesterday finished The Perfect Match by Kristen Higgins. And Kristen is, like, I'm wild about her. I think she's so funny. I think her, um, I I don't understand, I think her books are always so well put together. I think her characters are always so brilliantly drawn. And I love how ordinary they are. Um, The characters, not the books. I love that you sort of feel like, any one of these characters could be you and or somebody you know. Yes, I have those feelings about her books sometimes when they take place in Connecticut and I go visit my in-laws. I figure I'm going to run into at least two of them. Exactly, right. Yes, Shannon Stacy does the same thing. I'm convinced there's like Jane and I were talking. There's totally a whole bunch of Kowalskis there in Maine or New Hampshire. We can go visit. Exactly. Yes, of course. I read a lot of contemporary romance. The real hallmark of a great contemporary romance is that moment where you think this is my friend. Like this... I know somebody who would behave exactly this way. Um, And I think Kristen, particularly in this book, I mean, she just seems to get better and better for me. But in this book, there's there's a lot of um, there are a lot of characteristics of women. I'm in my mid 30s. All of my friends, many of my friends are in in our mid 30s. There are a lot of characteristics of women in in this time uh, in their mid 30s that are really sort of perfectly drawn in this book. And I really loved it. I cried multiple times, including, I think, for the first time in my life reading a romance novel, I cried on page, like, 65 of this book. (laughs) And then I emailed Kristen, and I was like, I'm not sure if this is because I'm pregnant or not, but very emotional, and this book is making me cry. If you go back to the period of time on the website when I was pregnant... There are so many reviews where I talk about how this book made the pregnant lady cry. I was a complete <laughs> sob fest on the bus in and out of Manhattan commuting. And people will be like, are you okay? Are you in pain? And I'm like, no, it's just my book. It's okay. <laughs> so you're not alone. It is very common. I was sitting in my obstetrician's office waiting for a checkup. And I was like <laughs> sniffling. <laughs> and I was on page 60 like, why which should be making you laugh hysterically. But usually there's drunken, uh, drunken cocktail, bad conversations. (laughs) Much humor. Exactly. And that's all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. The music that you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is by an artist named Jason Hemmons. This track is called Forgotten. You can get it as an MP3 online from his album, Welcome to Reality, or you can get it in actual physical three-dimensional hard copy of music. I think that's called an album or a record, whatever it is, you can go buy that too. I'll have links in the podcast entry about where you can find his music. 
If you like the podcast, and I hope you do, you can subscribe to our feeds or you can come and email us and tell us who we should interview and what we should ask them. Our email address is sbjpodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a message at our Google Voice number, which is 1201371DBSA. Please make sure to leave your name and where you're calling from so we can include your message in an upcoming podcast. Future podcasts will totally include, you guessed it, me and Jane talking about romance novels, because that's what we do. And finally, a message from our sponsors. Berkeley Sensation would like to ask that you be sure to remember to pick up Pamela Clare's romantic action thriller Striking Distance on sale wherever books are sold. When Baghdad-based reporter Laura was kidnapped by Al-Qaeda, she had no idea why. Luckily, her sexy Navy SEAL rescuer is on a mission to keep her safe, and finding the truth may be the most dangerous thing they've done yet. You can find Striking Distance wherever books are sold. And wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you are enjoying the very best of reading. Thank you for listening.